0: Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now, let's get this workout started. Hey, everyone. I hope you're having a great day. We are officially entering the zone. So, in case you haven't noticed, Black Friday deals have already begun and it's mid-November. And that is an early indicator that the holidays are right around the corner. Side note, check out skirtsports.com backslash sale, and you'll see some silly, awesome deals that come only a few magical times a year. As you can see, we're on it. So before we get rolling with today's amazing guest, um, I really want to talk about the holidays and what they mean to me. Everyone has their own relationship with the holidays and I believe it evolves throughout your life. So growing up, we had these amazing family traditions that all revolved around visiting, extended family, and eating, and some football games, and taking naps on the floor after dinner, but before dessert. So I just have this incredible nostalgia those times and I'm so grateful that my parents placed an emphasis on the holiday traditions. But then I moved away, became a pro athlete, and Tim and I started our own holiday traditions. See our goal was always to do some amazing epic workout together on a holiday and then cook and or go to friends who cooked and eat huge amounts of food with friends and any family who may be nearby. And that went on for over a decade. But then a child appeared. (laughs) Now, as a mom of a five-year-old and no more burning desire to do five-hour workouts on holidays, I'm settling into what the holidays mean in this stage of my life. And here's what I'm finding. I still want to do all the same things, just at a different level. I want an awesome workout doesn't have to be five hours. I want amazing food. I wanna bond with friends and family. You know, the biggest change is that the holidays are no longer all about me for fulfilling my own selfish pursuits. They're about doing the things that make me the best version of myself so I can bring that positivity into each area of my life. And maybe it's that I'm 45. But I'm totally in this place of love and acceptance for all things, starting with myself. So it hit me, why don't we treat every day like a holiday? Why don't we do the things that help center us and bring forth the best versions of ourselves every day? And you know what? We can. So, my challenge to you during the holidays is to simply be nice to you first and foremost. When you lay that foundation of self love every day, everyone around you can't help but feel happy and loved themselves. Because, as you know, many of you start to feel a little thing called stress. I refuse to use that word. But some people feel that, that actual yucky, tightening feeling as the holidays come because there's so much expected. Um, This is the perfect time for you to work on you. And it's a great theme to start with because our guest today, Lorraine Moeller, has been through the self-love ringer over the course of her incredible life. Lorraine grew up in New Zealand and struggled with physical, and emotional issues that affected her self-esteem at a young age. Fortunately, she was also blessed with a gift, the gift of running, a gift that she discovered when she was still a child. Uh, Lorraine pursued the sport of running, eventually becoming one of the best distance runners in the world. She won countless marathons, including Boston in 1984, She competed in four Olympic games, winning a bronze medal in 1992. And she was basically a pioneering woman in sport in all ways. Through her journey, Lorraine ultimately made peace with the things that held her back both personally and athletically. And that's what you're going to hear about in today's episode. Now, I find Lorraine to be a bright, positive light in this world. It's fun to interview people who've written tell-all memoirs because they have already found peace with all the tough things they've faced. And the simple act of writing them down for the entire world to see is very freeing. Note, we should all write a personal memoir be a lot easier to talk to each other. Um, It also allows us to talk very freely about things that can be uncomfortable like failed relationships and physical hardships and more. Lorraine has about 50 copies of her book. That's it. So let's make it our mission to sell them out. It's called On the Wings of Mercury. It's available on Amazon. And I found it to be one of the most well-written athlete memoirs I've ever read. It's so much more than a book about winning races. So head over to Amazon, nab one of the last copies. As you'll hear, Lorraine said she'll sign it for you. Just leave her a little note. All right, then let's get this party started. All right. So Lorraine, I just love it that your book's sitting out here and it's fun. Um, It's called On the Wings of Mercury, the Lorraine Moeller story. I read it like six months ago and it was given to me by a woman named Maria Uspensky who founded the Tea spot in Boulder. Do you know Maria?
1: I don't know Maria. Well, and so yeah. that
0: makes it even cooler, but open it up and see who you <laughs> inscribed it to because it's not her.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Who's Diana Jack?
1: I don't know.
0: Which is, means that this yeah. book may have been through, who knows how many, 10 people?
1: Right, and, and what's, yeah. And
0: what's really cool is someone was highlighting sections.
1: Oh, wow. I should have a look and see what was significant.
0: Aren't you impressed? I am. I mean, this is amazing. So, you know, we're going to dig into a lot of cool things today. Uh, I so appreciate you coming to be on the show.
1: Thank you. And I so appreciate being here.
0: (laughs) You've just had such a fun, impressive, gritty, dirty, tough, like your life has been everywhere. And you just seem like you're in such a good place now. And that's what makes you such a perfect person for an interview because you've been through enough stuff to have wisdom and enough time has passed that you're willing to talk about it.
1: (laughs) Well, it was quite a a cathartic thing to write a a memoir like that and to put stuff out on the page. Oh, yeah. And I I did think uh, the only reason I was able to do it because I went, okay, I can go back and edit it or the publisher will edit it. And so I just put it all out there.
0: Uh, And I'm so glad you did because like an autobiography, a story, a memoir that's not truly open it the the reader knows it they know you're holding back
1: yeah well I've read so many autobiographies of sports people that I've thrown down and go you know it's just sort of like they want to keep glorifying themselves and I did this and I did that and I would have been even greater if this hadn't happened to me and I don't think that's the point and it's not what people want to hear
0: I agree. So I think um, maybe we should start with the title, On the Wings of Mercury. So Mercury could be a lot of different things, right? I want Maybe can you explain what was the importance of Mercury to you?
1: Well, Mercury first came into my life in the 1984 Olympics. And when I finished fifth, I was disappointed that I hadn't won a medal and the Olympics were in LA and we were staying in the Westwood Village. And so I went, okay, I'm gonna go out and I'm just gonna buy myself a medal for a job well done. So I went into a jewelry shop and they had these gold pendants and so I treated myself one. Uh, I was with my friend, she bought something else but I got the mercury one. And the reason was because the mercury had um, the winged helmet and the winged feet and as a celestial messenger and also um, he is the um, rules the sign of Gemini which I'm a Gemini so it seemed perfect so I bought myself that mercury pendant and I wore it every day for many many years you know I have to
0: stop on just that one point here which was the importance of a medal You know, when you were racing in in 1984, I mean, races probably didn't give every single finisher a medal. You know, yesterday was the New York City Marathon, and I was going through my Facebook feed and just saw all these incredible women who were running anywhere from three hours to seven and a half hours, and every one of them was beaming with their medal at the end. So there is importance with that, isn't there? And I can't believe you did the Olympics in 1984. You didn't even get a medal. I mean, it doesn't have to be <laughs> gold, silver, or bronze. you your fifth place. You walked away with nothing. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's just a side Yeah, back. yeah. So um, so Mercury, that's the foundation of what that symbol meant for you in your life, right? But it carried you through your racing career and after, correct?
1: Well, then Mercury, in just very strange ways, and I love looking at synchronicities because I think then you were... Um, subconscious genius is speaking to you and giving you messages and uh, so that's what mercury became for me and um, so I'll tell you a little story about when I went to Japan in uh, 1986 was my first uh, race in Japan and I was really big into the mercury thing and being the celestial messenger and listening for the messages and uh, believing in something that was more than i could perceive with my five senses and um, running was the medium for doing it and i felt like mercury talked to me and uh, so i was on a program of coaching myself and being very independent and uh, reducing all the props that i had around me such as you know the the coach telling me what to do the the stopwatch the um massage therapist the aura fluffers all the people um that I depended on because you know as a professional athlete you can end up having a day just running from one appointment to the next Trying to micromanage all the little things. And I was much more interested in the big picture. So I arrive in Japan and it's a really big event. It's the Osaka Ladies International Marathon, which is one of the biggest women's races. It is the biggest in the world. And um,
0: still to this day? Yes, mm-hmm. I
1: think so. Um, it was sort of a race on its own, but um, because there weren't a lot of women's races. I mean, women's running was just only getting going, and 1984 was the first Olympic marathon for women, so you get uh, some sense of the climate. So I'm at this race, and I have been uh, selected to run against this um they brought me in, they've paid me to come in and they've brought in Julie Brown who was the fastest American runner at the time and she was two minutes faster than me um, so she was given the number one seed, and I was the number two and the race started off and Julie took off and on these long straights she got so far in front of me that by halfway when I turned a corner she had already turned the next corner and I couldn't see her And I'm starting to go, oh, maybe this isn't working. Um, Maybe I should have all the, you know, been much more scientific about it and all this. So these doubts started to creep in. And I think that the doubts are vital, a part of erasing, because when you reach those doubts, you have an opportunity to um, choose something different for yourself. And um, that's what I call Mercury's crossroads. So I was having these doubts and I turned the corner and right in front of me in the middle of downtown Osaka was a life-size statue of Mercury.
0: Are you kidding me? No,
1: I'm not <laughs> kidding you. There was a picture of me with it in the book. And I went, "Wow! how do you get a life-size statue, this, this um, Roman god in a life-size form in the middle of Japan Osaka (laughs) right in the middle of my course so you know I felt like it was a sign for me and um from that point on I caught Julie Brown and passed her pretty quickly and went on to win the race and uh so I felt that Osaka was my race I went back and won it two more times so um so it was very magical to have Mercury come into my life like that, and, and hence my book on the wings of Mercury. Oh,
0: and you—I think you said you don't have any more copies. You'd have to do another run.
1: Uh, yeah, I've sold about seven thousand copies. I have. Wow. I have uh, maybe. 50 or 60 books left.
0: All right. How can people buy them if they're listening?
1: Uh, they can go to Amazon. Perfect. And all they'll right. get a copy straight from me and ask awesome. me to autograph it if you want it.
0: Yes. <laughs> okay. You heard that. She'll do it. Um, let's put Lorraine to the task and, and buy all the rest of those books. 50 more. We can do this. Easy. Um, so, so I understand, you know, you reached a point and that that was a, a period of your running career where you, were, you had momentum and you were finding yourself and you were listening to signs, but your childhood didn't start off that way. And uh, your book is amazing because you are very open about the issues you had when you were young. Um, and I kind of want to take people through a little bit of like growing up maybe a little more insecure and what happened when you found running and how that changed you.
1: So I was the third of six children and so probably a little bit of a lost middle child um, in terms of just wanting mum's attention etc. When I was a year and a half about or before I was two and just toddling around, um, I stood on some glass and it got embedded in my foot. I had a, a lump under my big toe. And so I was put into hospital to have surgery on it, And that was the first of a very traumatic um, series of events where I was hospitalized and taken away from my family. And uh, so I believe that you know everything in a life is a setup. It's like just setting the scene so that we can get the lessons that we need to wake up to who we really are which is that we are divine beings having an experience here and um to become um conscious of that and you know it's i love this
0: philosophy um but it's hard to see that when you're in those tough times so it's easier to look back and say oh that was just part of my lesson learning right Mm -hmm. so how do you embrace those tough times. I know when you're a child, that's very hard, right. you know, but as we get older too.
1: Well, you know, as a child, what we do is we compensate. So we develop certain talent, skills. Um, we find ways to make it through because kids usually will make the best choice. Um, it also sets us up for the area where we have our biggest lessons and that's up to us um my mother always said that it's not what happens to you in life it's what you do with it that counts and so having parents with those sorts of philosophies i think um, and my dad was also very much a go-getter you know self-made man um, that they passed those things on so it wasn't that i was left um helpless although to a certain extent I was and I think you spend your life looking for the things to fill the gaps where we are emotionally um, um, damaged or um, have been scarred in some ways and um, and that makes a story that is worth telling I mean nobody wants vanilla all the time it's really boring
0: It is really boring yeah but you know the spicy stuff can be really painful (laughs) yes yes um so you mentioned your parents a little bit i know your dad was a super supporter of your running career you know he used to run with you right yes um maybe we can talk a little bit about how you found running
1: so um i was about i went to high school so that was like a major threshold of going from my childhood basically going into my adolescence and i got in a race whereas i enjoyed running but uh, they were 100 meter sprints and oh 100 yards in those days um and that was about the extent of it. And I was not the fastest by any means. But when I went to the senior athletics, now that I was in high school, I graduated to um, not the kids' night of the little sprints, but to real sport around the track. And they had a 440 yards race. And the girls that used to beat me in the sprints, I beat them in the 440 yards. And in that one lap around the track, I discovered that I was a distance runner. And that was enough of a success for me to want to do more. And then it snowballed from then on. And so I say that's when Mercury came and jumped into my life, and uh, opened up a whole field of new possibilities.
0: Well, there's definitely something to getting positive reinforcement with the things that we're good at, and then we gravitate to those things. So I'm sure running the 440, Which I do remember, because when I was a kid, it was still the four hundred and forty. You know, that was considered distance, and I am sure it was painful. You know, you you suffered when you ran, but you were still drawn to the positive parts of it.
1: I did not mind uh, pain, physical pain, and maybe that was my um, uh, one of the gifts that I got from my childhood that I could. Uh, use my mind to go through those hard things Um, so that was not a difficult thing for me I did not give up easily in the face of pain and I actually had the ability to run myself to a point of collapse which was you know um, a bit of a Dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my parents were really concerned having to pick me up and carry me home, you know, but really that was um, remedy just from training.
0: So, would you maybe there are maybe you can share a couple of defining moments from your childhood that still stand out that really, I don't know, epitomize the person you've become today? or big triggers or catalysts to bringing you to where you are today?
1: Okay, I'll tell you one, which my daughter referred to last night, oh, which um, was, is quite weird because we were talking about conspiracy theories and the Mandela effect. and I don't know if you know what that is, but anyway. Um, and I was talking Wait, about the Mandela effect. <laughs> the Mandela effect is when people remember something one way and other people remember another way, and it seems like the timeline's changed. Ah. and uh, it's uh, so we were having a discussion about time and how time is um, circular and really we only have the present moment and all probabilities that go forward which are really only exist as dreams and um, the probabilities that go back which exist as memories but we only have the present moment so anyway just uh, that's a segue into the story when I was uh, six years old, I was hospitalized for five weeks. That means I was away from my family for um, a long time. I can't and,
0: imagine my child is almost six and I just can't imagine that.
1: Oh, it was just horrendous. And the hospital was three hours from my hometown and my parents had the other kids to look after. And my dad came and visited maybe once a week if he could, but it was just horrendous. Um so i was went to the window and was looking out the window and i saw a woman running by and she stopped and she looked up at the window at me and she said or she or i heard in my head just hang in there it's going to be really good Um, so that was a defining moment now um After I won the Olympic bronze medal, I was in Auckland running around a park in the Domain. And I'd done many, I mean, hundreds of miles around this loop. And as I was coming up this path, I saw a tall building and I looked up and I saw a little face in the window. And I stopped which I don't usually do on a run but I stopped and I looked up at the window and I saw this little girl there and I said just hang in there it gets really good and then I kept on doing my run and and it just haunted me and later on I went to my hometown and I was talking to my mom and I said mom where was it that I was in hospital and she said it was at the Um, hospital on the Auckland domain so I feel like that we always have this interaction from our future selves to our present self that will if we can be open to it we will have these messages that will tell us what is our path of development because I really think life is not meant to break us we have struggles but they're there to to refine us, um, and that life is supportive. And we need to believe that we need to believe that we're not here to be broken.
0: That is a very powerful story, definitely brought tears to my (laughs) eyes. And um, I think it does require people to be very in tune with themselves. There's this intuition that we often have that we don't follow all the time or we don't trust, you know, as we go through life's path. And I feel like you may not have trusted yours until you hit a certain point in your life and then you started trusting your intuition more. Yes. Yeah. What? um, Tell me about that journey.
1: Well, I think um, in hospital, uh, having just those long periods on my own, I was completely dependent on myself for my survival
0: wow even at a very young age yes Mm -hmm. yeah
1: so I think that really opened that doorway for me to have a certain uh trust and reliance on me and yeah and I I, Mm -hmm. you talked about defining moments and one of them was when I was taken into the doctor's office at the end of one of my hospital visits and um I was with my mother and the doctor was explaining to her what was wrong with me what the condition was and he was talking about how I had this infection in the um, ureters and that the infection was spreading and when it got to my kidneys he said that they couldn't do anything he had the diagram you know he had the sort of here's the infection and you know and it's spreading and when it got to my kidneys that um there was nothing they could do for me so
0: like a urinary tract infection very common in little kids mm-hmm. yeah yeah but yours was a uh, greater like a t- i don't know it was just more than a temporary. It was more than that,
1: yeah, yeah. It was something that was so... Um, it it did not respond to antibiotics, okay. and it just got worse, and they had no antibiotics that would work, so they'd run out of options. So he told my mum when it reached my kidneys, there was nothing I could do because um, none of the drugs were working, and that they sent me home with nothing. They were sending me home with prayers, that took. Uh, Offer up prayers, and he thought that because I was you know I was under five at the time that I would not understand what he was saying, but you know the diagram gave me a pretty good idea I guess sort of got the gist of it, and I had this picture in my mind of where the infection was and which way it was traveling, and mentally I went, okay, then I just won't let it go any further and so that in my mind, I um, I blocked it off. Mentally, I blocked it off in my mind. And I think that started this um, connection, this mind-body connection, and understanding that I had much more power over my life and my own body than what I thought the doctor was an idiot. Actually, I really did.
0: <laughs> uh, are you listening, everyone? Okay, first, not all doctors are idiots, but the point is, we have power over our bodies. Our mind-body connection is probably the strongest relationship that we'll ever have.
1: Yes. Well, it it can't be any other way. It can't be any other way, and that's what we're doing as athletes mm-hmm. when we're training the body. It's, it's you know, the mind is the driver and the vehicle, the body's the vehicle.
0: Can I go back to, because um, with your infection, I do remember that your mom decided to buck the traditional advice, correct? And got you off of the antibiotics, but maybe didn't tell the doctors?
1: Yes. So they kept on giving me just more and more and more and more um, because they didn't know what to do. And uh, so my mom... And I wasn't any better, so my mum took me to a colour therapist, and I always remember the woman. Um, she did. Uh, a it's what like kind of therapist? Colour. Uh, so like she. A, like it was like vibrational therapy. Wow. Okay. And she had all the elements and she would go through a checklist of the elements and use a pendulum to see whether I needed them or not and she's looking where the deficiencies were but she told my mother that the antibiotics were poisoning me they were way too many and that uh, she reduced it I think I was probably like eight a day to like one a day, and she would build them up in a little cycle, and then drop off for a few days, and just to allow the body to kick in with its own responses. and And then she put me on certain elements. So one of them was sulfur, another one was silica, and they were powders. My mom stuck them in dates. The sulfur was just a yellow sulfurous powder that smelt like rotten eggs, and she'd put it in a date, and I would crunch away and eat it. Um, and I got better. And uh, my mom had these antibiotics that were... She stored them up in the cupboard, and they were big bottles of them because they kept on <laughs> piling me when I wasn't <laughs> taking them. But I did recover. And, wow. um that was, uh, I can't remember how old I was, probably from about eight to 12. We regularly went to her and I just got better and better and better. And then I got into running. Wow. Wow.
0: Did that whole process of like feeling like your body was sick make you, you know, eight, let's say, add to an insecurity building up when you were younger? Or was that a strengthening period?
1: I never thought of myself as sick. Got it. I didn't think I was sick you know I still um yeah I didn't have a a belief in myself as being sick at all I mean the biggest thing was that I was a chronic bedwetter and um yeah I um and I grew out of that my yeah. you know once I started running it just sort of went by the wayside and um, it's amazing. Yeah.
0: Well, let's. Uh, there's a, a few other really awesome. Uh, there's a lot of topics I want to cover today. We're just going to have a little <laughs> longer run today in the podcast. Um, as your running progressed, and you became a woman, and you know, you you went through your high school career, you became one of the fastest runners in your country. Right. Yes, yes. By the time you finished high school.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. Um, take us through a little bit of your running career, the early days.
1: Um. At the age of 14, I think I really started to establish myself as a distance runner. Um, My first few races, you know, I did my 400 race and then I kept on doing these races and um, I was just excited, but I didn't really know my place or I didn't have limits on myself I was just young and enthusiastic and I think one of the defining moments was um, at the district championships and I was in the 440 yards on a grass track with the senior woman because there were no events for the um, junior woman there just weren't even a lot of women that were running but these women were um, very good athletes and um there were probably 10 or more years my senior and I got in that race and I, I won it <laughs>
0: <laughs> were they, did they even consider you a threat
1: I don't think so <laughs> And they put it in the paper, they said, um, you know, 14-year-old wins in in an upset. (laughs) Yeah, I think everybody was upset with me, you know, but I had no idea that I was, you know, upsetting people because I I would never have wanted to do that. But um, I think that made people sit up and notice that there's a talent here. And okay, yeah. so
0: that was at 14. Yes. So you're entering high school, you're a freshman probably, right? Yes, yeah, 13, how the school system 13
1: I was in high school. Okay. So it was in my first year of high school. Yeah
0: yeah oh my goodness okay so and that was a shorter distance event i mean you went on to win a medal in the olympics in the marathon but that's not where you started obviously
1: right well at that time the longest event for women in the olympics was the 1500 meters right mm-hmm. and uh, not even that the olympics was on my radar at all except that after that race um, the president of our local athletic club came up to me and said one day you will go to the olympics and what's his name mr drummond yep and mr drummond um seemed to me like he was a very important man and he knew what he was talking about and um and so that sowed a seed in my mind um and i think those uh people are very important because um it, meant a lot and I kept coming back to it and uh, maybe that's a way that the future comes and speaks to you Mm. through these people who are uh, like elders and um, can see potential. Oh absolutely so you uh, you continued
0: upsetting people (laughs) (laughs) Um, throughout your high school career. Uh, Didn't you make a national team and even go traveling while you were still in high school? Yes,
1: Mm -hmm. yes. I made my first team um, when I was 16 and uh, then regularly after that. So competing on the international stage was something that I was exposed to early. And it wasn't like a huge uh, threshold that I had to bust through it came fairly easy, so I had no fear of um, competing on a on a big stage.
0: Well, and when did you actually
1: get structured coaching? Um, when I was around fourteen.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, but not Mr. Drummond.
1: No, no, Mr. Drummond was not a coach. My, he, um, I had other coaches who were telling me what to do, and and everybody was, you know, wanting to put their hand in and help me out and some were really good and some were not didn't know what they were doing um
0: but can I can I ask about this because a lot of people listening may be seeking coaching or have a relationship with a coach that may or may not be working how do you know if something's working how do you know if a coach knows what they're doing or not or they're a good fit for you
1: uh, that's a very good question, and I think in the field of um, sport, it's so unregulated that anybody can call themselves a coach. And I see a lot of people who coach who really don't know what they're doing, and they don't have the experience. Um, first of all, I would look for somebody who um, who has experience, who's been through it themselves. Um, but somebody who is um, was a great athlete might not necessarily be a good coach um but that would be a starter um and then um i think a coach will not only coach well but they'll also educate and i think one of the hallmarks of a coach is that um they have a reason for giving you the workout that they're giving you that it must fit into an overall picture and not just throwing something out there and because uh, most people if you are not training and you start training you will improve unless you do something really bad but it doesn't make it optimal training that's true so Um, So I would look for somebody with experience and um, I was very lucky because I was brought up in the country where Arthur Lydiard had developed his training program and he was probably the most influential coach of the 20th century and contributed more than anyone else to the whole field and would be the grandfather of periodization Um, and that system is just solid. If it's followed correctly, it um, sets you up well uh, for both um, racing for the long term. And I think because of that system, I was able to have such a lengthy career, which spanned from the time I was fourteen to the time that I retired when I was forty-one.
0: And that's an incredibly impressive span of time <laughs> to, to, you know, use your body. For a career, basically. So let's talk a little bit about Arthur Lydiard. Um, was he your coach early on, or did you develop a
1: relationship with him later? No, I was. He was never my coach. Okay. Um, Arthur coached a group of young men that um, sweep medals in the sixty and sixty-four Olympics. And one of his protégés was John Davies, who was a bronze medalist in the 1500 metres. And John lived 15 miles from my hometown. And Mr Drummond introduced me to John and said she needs some proper coaching. So um, he got me on this system, which was just building my aerobic base to begin with. And um, I can remember the first week uh, that I ran 40 miles in a week. And I still had my tiny little diary, and I have it circled in red, and it was amazing. And and as soon as I added those miles, and and that's when I started running with my dad. My dad went, "Okay, I'll run it with her." So, and he figured he was a safety valve. He was like the canary in the <laughs> in the coal mine, <laughs> <laughs> so that you know he would, if he couldn't handle it, then it was too much for me. Um, and I had just a wonderful time with my dad going to the forest and doing these runs and longer and longer runs and often got lost. My dad had a terrible sense of direction, and sometimes (laughs) we'd be out there for hours and hours. But it got um, – and we always raced each other at the end, and I always beat him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Developed a sprint. Um, Tell us a little more about periodization.
1: So periodization is – working with the body by um, building uh, different uh, energy systems in a systematic way and the fundamental thing is to build the distance first and build the speed later so the speed is developed on top of your aerobic capacity your aerobic capacity is your ability to utilize oxygen and convert it to energy and that's the currency that you're looking for as an athlete you want as much energy to convert into um, motion as you can Uh, along with that there the other system that needs developing is just um, musculoskeletal strength and that takes time it's much slower the cardiovascular system develops really quickly but just to be able to handle miles without getting injured takes time so you need to have a gradual approach and allow the body to adjust which it will because the whole body um, unlike a car it's adaptive it responds to what you do with it so it's continually um, with training building itself up in response to the stimulus that you're giving it and the whole thing about Lydia training is that um, it uses that capacity in a Um, in a way that is very gentle so it builds longevity into the system each year you can expect to improve and that's the hallmark of good training injury is not it's a overcompensation it's a negative adaptation Um, that means that your training is not is missing the mark injury illness and um, a performance that flattens out or decreases over time So then you know you're not doing good training because the body is made to keep on improving.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what happens as you age, because there's this natural slowdown that our bodies go through. By the time you're, you know, 45, 50, you can't expect to continue improving. What's cool about distance and being an endurance athlete in general is you can improve for a really long time, but at some point it does slow down. So... Like I experienced that as an athlete. I've watched my husband experience it too. I know I'm sure you did as well. Like how, what is your advice to people who are frustrated because they're no longer hitting their times and they're not sure if they're doing something wrong or yeah. How do you embrace that part of your life?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that a lot of aging is, um, a, a good percentage of it is a mindset. And I think, Not only a mindset, um, I think it's because people are not training correctly. So uh, the body goes into a breakdown, overall breakdown, so it's a decline rather than a build-up. So you get sort of on the other side of the hill. And um, I think that happens prematurely for a lot of people because they're not training correctly. Mostly with athletes because they overtrain. A-type personality, they get into it and they just keep pushing when what is required is the other side of the coin, which is recovery. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to re- surrender to and uh, be still. So um, there's both sides. Uh, so I think often people don't train correctly. They uh, stop improving and they call it old age. And it's not old age. Um we've just used our Lydia training programs with uh, running groups in Michigan and we have 500 runners using our programs and uh, they were a little bit resistant because they were used to the uh, the way that they trained but it got on to this periodization which is Mm -hmm. a series of phases and they um, every four to six weeks it changes up and they get uh, they're introduced to another type of Mm-hmm. Um, workouts and um, and it builds them up so that their pace increases and by the time they get to the race they're fresh and they have their maximum speed at which they're able to maintain and um, the big thing about it was that the coaches said that the injury rate was really really low hardly anyone got injured um, but they came to enjoy it Because there's a new type of work that's in it's like, oh, we've got through the base training now, we're going on to the hill training phase, or now we're going to the track, Mm -hmm. and um,
0: and you're giving them proper rest so they can hit those key workouts, you know, at at full capacity, yes. And so, this is part of what you do today, correct? You work uh, with the Lydiard Foundation, yes. And uh, what was the race in Michigan?
1: Uh, they did the uh, Detroit Marathon and Half Marathon and the Grand Rapids Marathon and Half Marathon. So they were training groups that trained for their full marathon. And most of them, we went out to the Detroit Marathon to cheer them on. Oh,
0: great. Now, are you still running marathons?
1: No, i not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I really don't have any interest. Um, you know, we have some no uh, some links in the show notes to what you do today and how people can participate with your philosophy and uh, the way you coach and train people. Now, do you coach individuals or do you coach coaches?
1: I coach coaches. Okay. So we have a coaching certification program, and people come in for a two and a half day course. Uh, we have them mostly in boulder but around the country and uh some around the world
0: well then um let's do this with i'll put some notes uh links in the show notes like i mentioned and we'll get people especially coaches out there who are interested in learning more about how to coach the whole athlete how to coach holistically because that's another part of what you do correct Mm -hmm. yeah that's what we had talked about when we met earlier
1: yes yeah yeah because the body is it's not just we're not a, just a physical system we're not machines and I think uh, and th- I think that's often why exercise physiologists are not great coaches um, you know it's sort of rare when you get one um, that is a is a good coach but you need to cater to the mind body spirit and the body is the the uh, the end result and of the you have to have correct functioning and um, feedback systems between all parts of self that are are copacetic you know they, they need to all be in harmony absolutely and I think you mentioned this at the very beginning
0: you know we spend our lives looking for the things to fill in the gaps don't we Yes, So that we can feel more whole. So I kind of want to take people back again. So you mentioned the 1984 Olympics, and you were fifth place in your debut, in the Olympic debut for the Women's Marathon. And you were disappointed with that result. Yes. And so you kept chasing it right? But you were also growing up. So you were starting to explore the world in different ways. Like you freely had some partying days and men came into the picture. (laughs) And you know, those kinds of things can also screw with our, uh, emotional, I don't know, balance. Right. Um, I, want, I actually wanna talk about, if you don't mind, some of those early days and like, what were you seeking through, for instance, your relationship with Ron?
1: Um, you know, relationships, if you read my book, you know, and you, you you're looking at the running and you're looking at the relationships and you can see the ups and downs and there was certainly a parallel with you know the relationships not going well the running sort of goes south and then pick myself up and away I go again and um, you know my uh, drive for approval and love and I think the dad to come and rescue me from the hospital bed was always there and um, that was a theme running in the background although I didn't recognize it at the time and uh, so I had a great difficulty with relationships but also because I was in a social climate where women were a a successful woman Um, one that I usually with my boyfriends or love interest. I was more successful to them. I earned more money. Um, I was, um, and I refused to make myself smaller to make them feel okay in the relationship.
0: Well, and that's a good point because, you know, we seek relationships so that we want ideally you'd be in a relationship or a marriage and you would feel like the best version of yourself in that marriage or relationship right yes and you know i know it you were open about this in the book so i wanted to bring it up because i think people could benefit from hearing a little more about you know you you married this man and it you describe it as very much less than positive and it didn't make you feel like the best version of yourself. And there was a really hard part for me to read in the book, but I want to say it out loud because it it just like broke my heart when you said it was like you had gotten married, you'd been on your honeymoon or you were on your honeymoon and you were like laying naked on the bed. And he walked in and he just like kind of shriveled his face and just, just said something like, you disgust me and walked out of the room. And I just, my heart broke reading that
1: yes yeah. so
0: how do you get there and how do you recover from that
1: well I think in relationships and I've found this often that we were we would get into power struggles and um so if I was perceived as more successful and he had been an Olympic athlete and it was very hard for him because he was on the downside of his career just as I was on the upside and he was 18 years older than me um And so when people do that, those sorts of things, they actually say more about themselves than they do about you. And for me to recognize, and I couldn't at the time, that um, that that was really how he felt and he was trying to find power within the relationship by pulling me down. Um, And of course it couldn't survive in that in that format and that's a learning experience and you know you talked about how I um, finished fifth in the Olympics and it wasn't good enough and that was the hole that I was always trying to fill feeling good enough and even when I won the bronze medal I didn't feel good enough and the only thing that was satisfying was winning outright And that would be satisfying. But it wouldn't last. And then I'd have to go do it again. So here I am, you know, a kid who was sickly as anything and achieving these incredible things on a world stage and never quite being happy with them. And that was my theme that I had to come full circle on. And I couldn't find it. Nobody else was going to give it to me. I wasn't going to get... um, complete approval from anybody in my life or the love that I wanted because I was not giving it to myself wow I think a lot of people
0: listening are might want to push pause here and rewind and hear that again because that is really incredibly powerful and relatable um did you ever give yourself permission to enjoy what you've done in your life
1: that happened in the very last olympics in uh, Atlanta in 96 my fourth Olympics I was 41 years old and still pushing at this and not able to retire but having to have another go to get that gold medal and in that race um, I came to a point at about halfway so the halfway is an interesting point that's always been (laughs) mercury's crossroads but Mm -hmm. in this race in atlanta you know up and down these big hills but we came to this point where the course looped back on itself and as i was going Mm one way i could see the runners who'd already made the turnaround and they were passing me and i had the most extraordinary experience in that moment Fatuma Roba the Ethiopian was in front and uh, she was striding out and she looked beautiful and I said to myself she's going to win and it seemed extraordinary because when I started running third world country woman African woman weren't running at all and and then uh, behind her came uh, Catherine Dory and um Uh, Yuko Aramori who had been second in the Olympics before where I was third um, and several others they were duking it out um for the second and third places and they were highly trained runners and each one that I looked at I saw an aspect of myself and I felt that it was one of those near death experiences where you see your life pass in front of you and it was my running life and um after looking at them i realized that that was it that i wasn't going to win the gold and it was okay i'm looking at them and going you know they're duking it out trying to get a a medal and i already have one and i haven't appreciated it at all it was never good enough and i i i realized that um what i had done was really quite extraordinary and what i was looking for was my own uh, uh, appreciation of myself and um, and just knowing that i went okay i'm done i can finish that's it you know and uh, so I think the thing about sport and being a competitive athlete is that you're always looking forward and you never rest on your laurels because when you rest on your laurels you're done so it's that inadequacy that keeps driving us and driving us and uh you know the the medals uh, it's great, you know. It's great to have the medals, and um, we can talk about our accomplishments. But always, it's the inner journey that is the thing that stays with us. That's what we're in it for. I think that people in sports are looking for more now. You know, we we don't want just the two dimensional thing, and you know, this comparison. But we realize that in the sport it's not competing against each other it's finding what is excellent within ourselves
0: and can you truly appreciate what you've done while you're in it
1: um i i don't know because i don't know if um if i hadn't felt inadequate not enough um in that way i wouldn't have strived so as I said in the beginning it's a setup. Right. We set ourselves up for a good story, you know. That's and <laughs> and you know, go for it. And uh suffering is not a bad thing. Uh as long as we are waking up.
0: I've got to read something from your book that somebody highlighted. It's funny. Um this is actually towards the end of the book. And I'm not exactly sure what section this is in, but it was a perfect place to just take a moment and embrace what you're talking about. Um, I tried to explain that the only secret was that there was no secret and that I trained according to what worked for me. I could see that in their scheme of things, my training volume was too small and could not produce the results I had from this old body. I realized then that the folly of trying to look at my training outside the framework of my journey, I wanted to explain that the lure of transformation kept me going and that I was not done until I was done, but I didn't. I am sure that that they left feeling I had withheld the big secret and perhaps I did, but I had no choice. The only secret is that you have to figure it out for yourself. And I actually, I believe this was at like a press conference from um, maybe in Japan when you went to race later on in your career and they were like, wait, this can't be all you do for your training. And they just wanted to know what was the magic juice and that was it. Yes. Yes. I remember that well. It's absolutely amazing. And it's very true. The only secret is that there is no secret, folks. (laughs) So after uh, 96, and you decided to embark on a new journey, which I guess would be called motherhood, right? Yes. yes. And that took a little while yes, to achieve. It did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that process.
1: Well... I think, you know, Shakespeare says all the world's a stage and we're actors and actresses, you know, making our entrance and exits. Um, And in our lifetime, we play many parts. And from the time I was a teenager until the age of 41, I was an athlete. And that was the part I played. And that was a long story until I took my exit at the end of the atlanta olympics in 96 and then it's like if you strongly define yourself in one role um dismantling it and getting into another role is an incredibly um challenging thing to do and uh so uh, i stopped reading running magazines i stopped going to races i uh had to wean myself off it and, uh, and running itself yeah i uh well i had um i wanted to be a mother um i had and i figured i had a very short time and i had four miscarriages leading up to by the time i was 45
0: so you didn't try before atlanta though so you're um, 41 when you started trying
1: yeah i had uh one pregnancy i think in um between uh after uh, barcelona that was a okay. miscarriage and then yeah. i decided okay i'm going back to heaven if i'm um, i lost the baby and i think it just for um that was what i knew to do So I went to another Olympics and ran my last Olympics when I was 41. But then I had three more miscarriages going up to um, 45. And they were the statistics, which I... I think statistics can be very misleading in the way that they are used. Um, the statistics were that my chance of giving a live birth at after at my age after the mm-hmm. four miscarriages were about 0.01% mm-hmm. or yada yada. Um, and uh, I went to a doctor and uh, I was pregnant and this was um, the last one. And, uh, and I wanted him to give me progesterone so that I could carry that pregnancy through. And I'd done quite a lot of research. And, um, and he started to tell me how the chances that I was not going to give a live birth or that if I did, it was going to have some sort of birth defect, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and he went on in that vein, and I got really upset with him. And I said, listen, my chances of winning a bronze medal in the Olympics at age 37 are way less than they are of me giving, uh, having a healthy child. <laughs> I'm and sure I you've never it. heard that before. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I've come to you because I want somebody who will join me in my dream and be a good coach. And if you're not going to do it, then I'm leaving and I'm not paying you because I didn't get what I wanted. And I did, I left. And I got my progesterone from some other source. And I ended up having a healthy baby girl at age 45. And, um, and this was
0: before IVF and all of the you know, shots and harvesting your eggs and all of that. You just made it happen.
1: Well, that was a possibility then. But I figured for miscarriages, that means getting pregnant is not the deal. The deal is holding on to the baby. And um, I think that it's like anything else. It's uh, um, a contract that you have between three people to bring this kid into the world. And I figured that the soul really wanted to come because she kept on coming. Um, And that I just needed to provide the right environment for that to happen and um and the progesterone really was a key thing i think but it was also the consciousness and the willingness because there were things that happened on her father's side that also really greatly influenced that situation mm-hmm. yeah and it's just a coming together you know um the timing and um
0: well and you need to be an advocate for yourself you know a lot of people will listen to what those doctors say and then they will let their body release the baby it's like when you were very young you mentioned something early on it was about your um urinary tract infection or your urinary infection Mm -hmm. and that you just decided emotionally mentally you would make it reverse direction you Mm -hmm. know so when you hear enough negative Um, input from other people you start believing it so you have to be very strong in that case and then like the fact that you advocated for yourself with medical professionals was really impressive especially now your daughter is how old?
1: 17.
0: Yeah so 18 years ago you had to do this and that wasn't very common so kudos. Yes yes
1: well you know Nicole I think this whole um, life um, journey is coming to understand how incredibly powerful we are as human beings and we are so led to believe that we are inadequate that we're not enough that we don't have any power over our reality and it's just as simple as deciding that this is what i want to bring into my life because it's all possible And then everything starts to mobilize and go in that direction for you. And it's no different from choosing the race and going, this is what I choose. And then going for it. And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. But you learn more about that creative process and it was no different with my daughter i'm going okay i've been to the olympics and i've got myself a bronze medal and it's good enough i can create a baby into my life i have enough going i've had pregnancies now all i have to do is go the whole distance and it was um and but anybody can do that it's like we we get so focused on there being a problem Get off the problem. Yeah, get off the problem.
0: Well, I'm going to take us to the final question I ask everybody on the show. Um, Can you leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget that will help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way?
1: Uh, Believe in yourself. I that was the biggest thing underlying. I believed in myself. I'd go, okay. People are telling me I should retire, or I've got um, um, that I'm too old. I've been told everything, you know, too old, too young, you know, female, inadequate, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I don't believe in what other people tell you. If it doesn't serve your dream
0: perfect way to end it thank you so much for your time today this was great
1: thank you nicole
0: it's funny um i feel like i've known lorraine my entire life possibly because we run in the same circles in boulder the endurance athlete world and the endurance athlete mecca of the world Or because, I don't know, maybe it's because she was at her peak when I was entering the world of endurance sports. So her name has always been so familiar. But either way, I just, I think she has that effect on people. You feel like you've known her your whole life. Because when you've gone through incredible highs and lows, you come out the other side with less judgment, more compassion, and emanating that self-love that I talked about at the beginning. And we're all drawn to that, let's face it, aren't we? As Lorraine says, life is not meant to break us. Once we stop seeking the things to fill the gaps in our lives, we can get down to the most important part believing in ourselves it's an important message all right everyone head over to NicoleDaboom.com to check out the link to Lorraine's book in the show notes it's available on Amazon just leave her a little note and say please sign it I'm coming to you from Nicole's podcast as always thank you for sharing your time with me please take a moment to share this episode or any episode that has moved you and made you think in a different way Share it with a friend or loved one who could benefit from a life of greater positivity. All right, then you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week.